Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Invisibility Today podcast. I'm your tiny disabled host, Laura Elliott. April's show is dedicated to Autism Acceptance Month, so today I'll be speaking to Brooke, an autistic activist from the UK, about the difference between autism awareness and autism acceptance, the human rights issues faced by autistic people today, and why it takes so long for some to receive a diagnosis. But first, a roundup of what's been happening in visibility in April. In the US, the attack on Medicaid continues under the radar, with new work requirements being introduced at state level that could see thousands of people lose their health care. By introducing work requirements, the state's new laws would hit low-income families, homeless people, people with mental health issues, older Americans and sick and disabled people the hardest. At least 160 organisations have written to the Department of Health and Human Services to register their opposition, but for now, the scheme shows no sign of slowing. In the UK, shocking new figures released this month have revealed that disabled people now lose legal aid in 99% of benefits disputes. The new figures are being blamed on the Tories' drastic cuts, which were introduced as part of their austerity drive in 2013. MPs and campaigners have reacted with anger to the statistics, with many saying they show how the most vulnerable in society are being cast adrift in austerity Britain. The sad death of actor Vern Troyer this month has shone a light on the mental health issues experienced by many people with dwarfism. Writing on Twitter and in a moving article for The Guardian, Eugene Grant, a writer and activist, said the actor's tragic death underlined the harm Mini-Me caused to people with the condition. In more positive news, the first ever disability-led ensemble to play the BBC Proms was announced this month. Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra's Resound Ensemble will make their proms debut less than a year after being formed and are one of a number of groups challenging the misconception that disabled musicians can't play professionally. And, as I mentioned earlier, this month is Autism Acceptance Month, but if you're not autistic, then you could be forgiven for thinking autism awareness is the order of the day. Never fear, though, because this month I'm joined on the podcast by someone who knows a lot more about autism than I do. This month I'm joined by Brooke Winters, an autistic activist from the UK and we are going to be talking about autism awareness and autism acceptance and whether or not there's a difference, which I think we'll find there is. So, welcome to the show Brooke. Thank you very much. It's really great to have you. So this month is Autism Awareness and Autism Acceptance Month, although one is being led by autistic people and the other not so much. Can you explain what the difference is between these two campaigns? Absolutely. So I think you've kind of already touched on one of the really key differences. Autism awareness is led by non-autistic people and the inclusion of autistic people tends to be tokenistic and it often doesn't really reflect the diversity of autistic people. So autism awareness, for example, often focuses on white boys um, and it reinforces the idea that black people and Asian people and other minority ethnic people can't be autistic and that there aren't women who are autistic and non-binary people who are autistic and so often the autistic people who are included are just you know they're just there as tokens and it, it tends to exclude the more marginalized autistic people like for example people with learning disabilities and non-verbal autistic people and we're you know we're really diverse autistic people are from all genders and all ethnicities and we are disabled in other ways not just through being autistic and opinions among autistic people are diverse and with autism awareness i think it tends to be focused on the same things whereas 
autism acceptance, you do hear different opinions from different autistic people who have different experiences of being autistic. Um, and autism awareness tends to be very much associated with big charities like Autism Speaks, for example, or the National Autistic Society. And these are both organisations that many autistic people don't trust. Can you explain a little bit about why a lot of autistic people have problems with um, things like Autism Speaks? I think, again, it, it kind of goes back to they're run and they're led by non-autistic people. And I think anything about autistic people has to be, at least at the very least, it has to include autistic people. And most big organisations don't. Autism Speaks has run a number of campaigns and done many things that have been really hurtful to autistic people and actually quite harmful. For example, they had a video where a parent of an autistic person said in front of their autistic child that they often or they they had thought about killing their child. Things like that are really horrific to watch as an autistic person, but just as a person to watch that and to hear that is really horrific. And to say that in front of the child that you are thinking about hurting is just awful. It's horrendous. There's a lot of sympathy anyway for people who harm autistic children you know if an autistic child and and it's a wider issue among disabled people but if an autistic child is murdered there will always be people who sympathize with the parent who excuse what they did because it's stressful raising an autistic child and it is stressful raising an autistic child in a society that wasn't created for us is really challenging and I don't seek to minimize that but to use that to say it's okay to kill autistic people is just it's awful and charities like autism speaks not only do they not challenge these awful ideas they really reinforce them obviously we're uk based and autism speaks is in north america and the national autistic society who are an organization who i have respected previously in my role as a social worker i've used the national autistic society's website before i knew that i was autistic to to learn about autism and to learn about autistic children and to get advice and i always thought of it as a really respected organization but actually the more part of the autistic community i've become the more stories i've heard about the national autistic society not listening to autistic people not taking action when autistic children are abused even recently some autistic people who were in one of their care homes were abused really awfully abused and the national autistic society took a very long time to take any action and these people were left in that situation and so it's really difficult to trust organizations like that and that's not to say that the national autistic society don't do any good work there's some great autistic people who work for them there's some great local services that do great work But as an organisation, it's difficult to trust them. And so when you've got an awareness campaign like Autism Awareness and it's being led by organisations like this, it's difficult to trust the campaign. And it's just really difficult to see how that can bring about positive change. If it's not being led by the people who it's meant to be serving, then it's difficult to see how they can have the right ideas or do the most amount of good without knowing the full issues. Absolutely. And not only because they're not autistic, but because they've actually harmed autistic people. You know, if you've got an organisation that's left autistic people in an abusive situation and then they're running a campaign or they're taking part in a campaign and they're kind of the face of the campaign, how are autistic people supposed to trust that? How are we supposed to feel comfortable 
taking part in autism awareness. Um, and so for me, one of the, going back to your earlier question, one of the key differences between autism awareness and autism acceptance is that autism acceptance does tend to be led by autistic people and autistic-led organisations who are doing fantastic work with fewer resources than charities like the National Autistic Society, who tend to use things like autism awareness as fundraising campaigns. Not that there's anything wrong with fundraising. Charities need to do it. But I don't necessarily think that autism awareness should be used as a fundraising campaign, because that's not what awareness is. I suppose it depends what they're raising awareness of as well, doesn't it? Because I think a lot of people, people who are raising awareness of autism, particularly if their parents are not autistic themselves, seem to see autism as itself as a bad thing, as opposed to just a part of people. So if they're raising Absolutely. awareness of autism in that way, then what are they actually raising awareness for? Is it for a cure? Because autism is a neurodivergence not not an illness in that way absolutely you're absolutely right there and i think that that's the other problem with autism awareness is that it does portray autism as being a tragedy and autistic people as being a burden and it's not really about raising awareness of the things that i would say matter it's about gaining sympathy for parents and and also about lining the pockets of big charities people will donate money if you tug at their heartstrings if you make them feel like there's this epidemic which is a word that is often used about autism then they're going to give you money that's going to get you more money than saying look here's a human rights issue we need to promote human rights for autistic people that that message doesn't make money mm. and i think a lot of big charities they have huge resources and lots of money they do see the idea of autism as a neurodivergence and and as a, a a part of you know the rich human experience it isn't a view the public or the media seem to have ran with yet despite autistic people saying hello please please don't try to cure me please just let me be do you think that's a problem that the charities have created or is it just perhaps one that they're unaware of or are they capitalizing on or is I mean, they're definitely capitalising on it, I think, definitely. And I think it's, it's a big issue that the general public, they're not even open to the idea that autism isn't a tragedy. I see it quite often um, on Twitter and in other spaces where I talk about being autistic. People are really committed to this idea that autistic people must suffer and that autism itself is suffering. And, you know, even though you will find people saying oh I wish that autistic people could be happy and live fulfilling lives they don't like it when when we tell them that we actually do <laughs> live fulfilling lives and we can be happy um they really push back against that and people will argue really strongly that you know autistic people suffer from autism <laughs> which just isn't true and I do think I do think it's partly because of the charities you know they control the whole narrative and and it's in their interest to portray us as a tragedy and as a burden because that makes them money. But I, the other issue is that actually our understanding of autism is constantly changing. Back when I was a child, people didn't even think that women could be autistic or girls could be autistic. It's quite a new thing. It's um, amazing to think that now. It's yeah. shocking that it was that recent as well. Yeah, I mean, I look back on being a child and I was so obviously autistic. And I remember all the doctor's appointments where... I would have hearing tests and 
they would be trying to pin it on anything and I was in the special needs class and they couldn't work out what was wrong with me um and obviously there's nothing wrong with me but people would never even consider that I was autistic and so people's understanding changes or at least people within the field their understanding changes but for the general public they really hold on to outdated ideas about what autism is and what it means to be autistic and I kind of feel like we can't blame them because Mm. the dominant narratives that we see everywhere not just from charities but in the media um, and in books they all reinforce the same ideas so how can you expect the general public who may not know that they know an autistic person they probably do know an autistic person but they don't know they're autistic because they've got this stereotypical idea how can you expect them to really understand or to really understand the issues that autistic people face when they're just not getting those messages and the other thing with charities is they've got these huge platforms and not just charities, but there's also autism parents with huge platforms, big media personalities who will reach more people than I could ever hope to with their messages. How can how can autistic people hope to change that narrative when we don't hold the same amount of power? If you and other autistic people could control the narrative and the campaigns at, at that level, what kind of things would you focus on? What kind of things do you think it's important for the public to know? Well, I mean, I do think that it's important to raise awareness, but I think that I would want to shift the narrative and kind of shift the focus so that instead of seeing the challenges that autistic people face as being part of autism, I'd like to take a more social model approach so that people recognise that society is inaccessible. So I would kind of shift the focus in that direction. And the things that I would really like to see awareness raised around would be things like the high abuse rate of children. Autistic children, or disabled children actually, are four times more likely to be abused than than any other children. And they're more likely to be abused by a close family member than other children as well. So there's real significant risks around abuse. Mm. And specifically for autistic children, there are concerns that parents are poisoning their children and they're giving them bleach enemas in an attempt to cure them of autism. And obviously autism can't be cured and autism doesn't need to be cured. But people will try, like desperate people will try and, you know, they'll try anything to make their child neurotypical. And I'd like there to be more awareness raised around this. I'm, I'm a social worker and I work with children. And when I, um, I went to an event for Autistic UK, which is an autistic run organisation, and there was a campaigner there called Emma Dalmain. And she's done some amazing work around this type of abuse, where she has worked with the police and social services to actually rescue children who are being abused in this way. Mm-hmm. And when I went back to work and told my colleagues about it, like me, most of them had never, never heard about this. Mm-hmm. And it's our job to protect children. Mm-hmm. And so I think that actually there's some key things where awareness needs to be raised both for the general public but also for professionals absolutely and actually to appoint parents because obviously never excusing that kind of abuse but also if they don't know anything about autism and they're told that these things are cures they might not even know the harm they're doing not necessarily of the bleach enemas, but I was thinking specifically then of um, who was termed Elmo Mum recently last month who wrote her yeah. Autism Uncensored book. And I, I haven't read it, but I've, I've read along with autist- some autistic people who were tweeting their reading of it. And when she's talking about, you know, restraining him in public and things because he doesn't he doesn't know what's happening and he's or, or, or he's having a sensory overload and she doesn't seem to understand... 
that it's not a phobia, he's in pain. That kind of education as well. It seems like parents just don't know how to see things from the point of view of their autistic child as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done with parents. And professionally, I've seen a shift from people trying to change autistic children to people trying to change the way that parents and foster carers parent autistic children. I've seen that shift, but it's difficult to say how much of that is because I'm the social worker (laughs) and how much of that is a shift in actual practice. But parents do need to be educated. I think for neurotypical parents, the parenting of autistic children may not come as naturally as parenting non-autistic children. And it's in everything an autistic child does, you know, children have certain behaviours that they exhibit in order to bring their their carers closer as a a way of protecting them and forming attachments. And autistic children don't necessarily behave in that same way. And then parents don't always know how to respond to their children in the best way. But when you've got so much misinformation around and lack of support from professionals, because many families don't get any support at all, it can be really difficult for parents. And again, I'm not excusing parents who abuse their children I I don't think there is an excuse um, for abusing your children especially poisoning them and giving them bleach enemas absolutely Um, but I do I do agree with you that that there needs to be more education for parents Mm. and I'd like to see awareness raised around that I'd like people to be aware of the lack of support that parents receive Mm. and the lack of support that that autistic people receive and also the delays in diagnosis you know in where I live it takes two years just to see the person who will assess you and the process is constantly changing it used to be that we were assessed locally now we have to go to london to be assessed which for an autistic person i'm okay with that i commute into work every day but for many autistic people that's a barrier to diagnosis and i'd like there to be awareness raised around this and around the long waiting times and the lack of support that people receive while waiting for diagnosis not that there's a huge amount afterwards but at least there's some. No, absolutely. I I had no idea, actually, that they've moved it away from locally, that, that to even get a diagnosis, you have to travel to London. That's incredible. Yeah, and it's and it changes. You know, a couple of years ago, it, that wasn't the process. It probably won't be the process in a year's time. You know, you could probably get to the end of the waiting list and they would have changed the way that you get diagnosed. I don't know. Oh, dear, that's ridiculous. Out of curiosity, how how long did it take for you to get diagnosed? How old were you? I'm still waiting. You're still I'm waiting? I'm on the waiting list. I'm, I'm self-diagnosed. Oh, wow. Um, I intentionally delayed getting diagnosis because of my job. I waited until I was established enough that, well, that it would be obvious that people were discriminating against me if I did, you know, get fired or something like that yeah. before going to my GP. And I'm about maybe six months into a two-year waiting list. Wow. It's sad that you even have to consider that as well, that, that you would have to wait to be established in your job just because a diagnosis of autism might might jeopardise that as well. Yeah, and you, you hope that in social work people are more understanding. And actually when I approached my manager to tell her that I'd been referred, she was very supportive and the senior managers have been very supportive as well. So I've been quite lucky in that regard. But in social work, you would expect that because that's kind of part of our job. Um <laughs> But it is, it's a real risk for many autistic people. People have these ideas about what an autistic person is and how an autistic person behaves. And especially if you're in a job that involves interaction with other people, 
there's kind of this assumption that you couldn't possibly be autistic and do that job well. Among autistic people, we have different difficulties. I think to an extent we all struggle in um, in certain social situations. Like I struggle quite a lot with eye contact, for example, and with small talk and all those other things that neurotypicals, or I should say non-autistic people, because not all non-autistic people are neurotypical, but all those things that non-autistic people kind of take for granted, I, I do struggle with, and many autistic people do, but to different degrees, and we learn ways to cope. Mm. And actually, when you're working with children who are autistic, as well as children who are non-autistic, I think it's a good thing to have autistic social workers. Our communication may be different, but actually different children will respond will respond to that. Absolutely. but And also, as, as an autistic social worker, if you encounter autistic children, you must be, in some ways, much better placed to understand how they're feeling as well, and some responses that might just seem kind of jarring to someone who isn't autistic would make a little bit more sense to you, perhaps. Absolutely. It was actually how I realised I was autistic. I used to work in learning disabilities. I worked in a day centre for adults with profound and multiple learning disabilities. And some things were just so obvious to me about how people's needs weren't being met and people who were experiencing sensory overload. It was so obvious to me when I went in there and other people hadn't picked up on it. And I just thought, well, in that situation, I'd be reacting exactly the same as they are. So why... Why can't other people see that? And the more that I researched and the more that I worked with, with the customers in, in the day centre, the more I began to realise, actually, I'm more like them than I am my colleagues. <laughs> and that's how I realised I was autistic. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And again, kind of both surprising and unsurprising, if that makes sense, to go that long without knowing. And then, of course, if you're confronted with things that seem to not make sense to other people and you're just there like, no, no, this is actually... This makes perfect sense to me. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I always knew there was something different. And everyone always knew there was something different. But growing up at a time when women just or girls just weren't autistic, you know, it, it was kind of a revelation. It must have been. What do you think needs to be done to encourage more acceptance of autistic people? Because we've just talked about how in social work you would hope to find acceptance but in wider society I'm sure much like you many people would be a little bit worried about going to their boss and saying I'm pursuing an autism diagnosis or I am autistic do you think there are things that workplaces can do to encourage acceptance of autistic people I don't want to get too theoretical because people's eyes glaze over when I start talking theory but in social work, we use a model called the PCS model, um, which sees oppression as existing at three levels. So you have the personal, which is then embedded in the cultural, which is embedded in the structural. So oppression exists at the personal, the cultural and the structural levels, and they all influence each other. But the structural can influence the cultural easier than the cultural can influence the structural. To really encourage acceptance, you have to look at all three levels, because you can change an individual's opinion and you can educate them and they can change the way they interact with autistic people, which can be really important and can make a huge difference to the lives of autistic people. But then you still have a culture and a structure that oppresses us. And I think that you have to look at the bigger picture. So you have to look at media representation of autistic people and what that's telling the general public. And you have to look at 
the way transport system works, for example, and how inaccessible that is. I mean, we know it's inaccessible for a lot of disabled people anyway, but for autistic people, there's also ways that public places in general just aren't accessible, and that has to be addressed. Um, And we need to look at things like the law and how we make the law accessible to autistic people and ensure that the law offers enough protections um, for autistic people. So I think it's, it's a huge thing. And I don't think you can just look at one aspect. You can't just look at making work accessible because, I mean, my office is hugely inaccessible, actually. But even if I worked in the most accessible office, that would make no difference if I couldn't get there. And so I think that to look at one section of society or one aspect of autistic people's lives that will bring about some change but not enough change and I think it has to be everything. Now I'm going to go back to something you said earlier which is um, when you were talking about person first language. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between identity first and person first language and what the misconceptions around both of these things are? Sure so person first language is um, you'd say a person with autism or a person has autism and identity first language is just saying an autistic person or autistic people it's one of my biggest frustrations on twitter because like you said so many people will try and force autistic people to refer to themselves using person first language it's really popular among neurotypical people who think they're doing the right thing but actually the majority or at least the evidence we have suggests the majority of autistic people prefer identity first language and so there's kind of two reasons why I feel really strongly about it the first is that I think a community should decide how it's referred to so if tomorrow the whole autistic community changed its mind and decided that person first language was preferred or if somehow someone could prove that the majority of autistic people felt that person first language was preferred even though I hate person first language I would use it to refer to the community because I think I think it's a really key part in empowering any marginalized people is to allow them to control how they're they're referred to but the other reason that I hate person first language and would personally, for myself, always use identity-first language, is I think that person-first language is actually quite stigmatising. And I think a lot of the reasons that neurotypical people give for using it are quite quite ableist. And it's not that all autistic people prefer identity-first, because there are some autistic people, and there always will be. There will never be 100% of people agreeing on anything. But most people who who use it either for themselves or for other people, do it to distance themselves from autism. And for me, being autistic is just, it's part of everything I am. And it's not the only part of me. It's, you know, it's not all of me. I'm other things too, but it can't be separated from me. And I think, especially for autistic people, because we tend to take language quite literally. When, you, when someone says a person with autism, I quite literally imagine autism being something separated. You know, someone <laughs> said they were parenting a child with autism. <laughs> and I imagine autism as the co-parent, not as part of the child. <laughs> and so I think it's especially ridiculous to use it for autistic people. But there is there is a more serious side to it, because actually a lot of people who argue for person first language and people will argue with you even even though you're identifying yourself in that way even if I'm just calling myself an autistic person they'll say things like you wouldn't say a cancerous person you'd say a person with cancer 
and I always think, well, of course you would, because cancer is something you literally have. But cancer's also pretty awful, you know? Like, it kills people. <laughs> Whereas autism, being autistic, isn't a bad thing. For me, it, it shows how people view autistic people. They, they view autism like cancer. Which is horrifying when, as you say, you cannot separate autism from who you are as a person. Yeah, and I, but I think that many people think you can. There's this idea that underneath every autistic person, there's just a neurotypical person waiting to be set free. <laughs> Which, again, is horrific imagery. When, when you think literally, like many autistic people do, it's a really horrifying image to have. But I think, I think it is important that autistic people are able to identify however they want. And I will always support other autistic people who identify as people with autism. It will hurt me to do so, <laughs> um, but I will do it because that's just basic is basic respect and so when people come into my mentions to tell me not to call myself autistic I just think that's so disrespectful like who who do you think you are I could call myself a slur I could reclaim a slur as many disabled people do and you would have no right to tell me what I should call myself mm -hmm. and I think it's one of those areas where people think they're an expert often because they attended a very short course taught by a non-autistic person or because they knew someone who had an autistic child or they read a book that was you know maybe by almo mum i think it's the arrogance mm -hmm. of non-autistic people thinking their views are more important than autistic people mm -hmm. and i think especially with all the concerns that have come out recently around poisoning children um, and giving them bleach enemas i think more than ever it's really important that we look at the messages that we give people through our language. You know, if you have an autistic child, but you've had no interactions with autistic people before, and someone tells you your child has autism, and often there's not much support around for parents, and there's not much information, and what information there is may not be accessible to parents who um, have different learning needs, for example. So they will view it as something their child has rather than something their child is. And it's a logical conclusion that if someone has something, that it can be cured. But actually, in pursuit of curing it, what you what they tend to do is quite a lot of damage. Absolutely. Physical damage, emotional damage. There's a lot of autistic adults who had ABA who have reported that they've had PTSD as a result, that it's been really traumatic for them. Yet it's still widely available and encouraged. Many parents are encouraged to um, access that kind of support and I use the word support loosely for their child and some parents of autistic children have even said that it's the only support that they've been offered and so if your response to an autistic child is to make them less autistic or at least appear to be less autistic actually I, I think that that's a form of abuse in itself and I, I really think that that's one of the reasons why mental health problems are so prevalent among autistic people and why the suicide rate is so high among autistic people. It's exhausting trying to act like you're not autistic. And actually, many of the behaviours that we have that are seen as problematic, like stimming, for example, which is self-stimulatory behaviours, they're a coping mechanism and they help us to manage the world around us and to deal with all the sensory input that we get. And then you have things like ABA that try to make us appear less autistic, but actually just take away everything that we have and that comes naturally to us to protect ourselves and manage the world. And 
of course that's going to result in harm. And so it's not even a case that just the world is is very inaccessible to autistic people, but also it's made to be more inaccessible because the coping mechanisms that are there are trained out of people through, in inverted commas, therapies like this. Yes, absolutely. Before I found the autistic community, and I stim a lot, like constantly, it was one of the big concerns that people had when I was a child. And I used to have actual nightmares where I would accidentally stim in public. And those nightmares have stopped since I found the autistic community. But I just think that I can't be the only autistic person who's experienced that. Mm. And it adds a level of stress Mm. to actually what's already quite a stressful existence. I think being autistic is a good thing. I think it's at least equal with being non-autistic. But it's stressful because Mm. the world around us is so busy and overwhelming. And we don't have the supports in place as a society Mm. to support autistic people with that. For anyone who wants to learn more about autism and autism acceptance, as Brooke mentioned, Autistic UK is an organisation run by and for autistic people, and you can find them online at www.autisticuk.org. As Brooke said at the beginning of our interview, most representations of autism in the media concentrate on white voices, but this month Kayla Smith, a black autistic campaigner in the US, has started the hashtag Autistic Black Pride. Here she is talking about her reasons why. My name is Kayla Smith and I'm a disability rights activist. I have created the Autistic Black Pride. The Autistic Black Pride is about to uplifting Autistic Black voices to talk about experience and as well as celebrating and embracing Black Pride in the Autistic community. Autism always look at as a white people problem. And you don't see people who are black, Asian, Hispanic, who are autistic. But most of the time, white people get, you know, autism more likely than people of color. And not many representatives in the community, our voices don't get heard. And um, you might have seen the hashtag called uh, Disability Too Right. And the one who created um, this very um, too white by um, Vanessa Thompson, and she the one to speak about because a lot of time you may have heard that no one ever talk about uh, people of color experiences. They always leave it out, not representing the disability community as a whole, and same go as the autism community. It's said that by when it comes to disability race, um, people kind of like don't want to talk about it or to get too comfortable. As you know, that racism exists all form. And we can't deal with that in the, our community, disability community, and probably as well as our autism community as well. And I just want hope. Uh, I see um, black people who, who have children of their own, or the autism cell, use the hashtag and use it to spread awareness about um, people of color experience. And hope that we get, you know, embrace it and celebrate who we are and don't, don't be ashamed to be autistic and black and hopefully end the um, disability to white. And uh, for me, I'm autistic and, and black. And probably the same to all uh, autistic black people feel like they're the only black person who are all to the white, rest of the population are white. But this time, 
I wanted to end the um this bit too right thing and um and I hope everyone could use it, promote and celebrate out to the black pride and embrace who we are. Love ourselves. And um and I hope um the other community, all the minority um racial ethnicity community do the same thing. Talk about their experience, whether they are Asian, Hispanic, or where they are. I want to talk. About, I want them to talk about their experience and celebrate their pride, being autistic and wherever they ways they are. And we need to represent ourselves more and get our voices be heard. And we need it now. I hope this had to reach out to millions of autistic black folk, find it and use it because. So they don't feel alone and hope they use it and spread it and embrace black pride though <laughs> and um embrace autistic pride. Yeah, you know like and uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter is um Ben Kayla Smith and um I hope y'all could use it and promote it. And uh, I want y'all, especially to a black African-American, embrace y'all identity. Because uh, we need to celebrate because though better being artistic black, it could be more harder. And we need to talk about it. Talk about what's going on, what our issue is. And hope spread the witness. Thank you, y'all. Bye. Now we come to our final section of the show, and this month we're shining some visibility on the actually autistic creators, fundraisers and activists who've been doing great work. In literary and writing visibility, you can read work on disability in TV and film by actually autistic writer Jay at www.asnotseenonscreen.com and follow Jay at Ms. J T Rattray on Twitter. In exciting new book news, Lizzie Huxley-Jones from Three of Cups Press is editing a new anthology of actually autistic authors and artists with Unbound. The new book is called Stim and you can pledge your support for it at www.unbound.com forward slash books forward slash stim and follow Lizzie on Twitter at at little Finally, Brooke, who we've just had on the show, is compiling a list of autistic authors on her Twitter page at at brookewinters33. So if you're looking for more actually autistic author representation, you can find it on her pinned tweet. In fundraising visibility, you can still make a timely purchase on Bonfire for one of the stunning Autism is Magical shirts by Sky. To show your autistic pride or your solidarity as an ally, you can find Sky's designs at www.bonfire.com forward slash autism dash is dash magical. In artistic visibility, you can enjoy great comic designs and cats from autistic artist Beth Wilson. Her work can be found at www.doodlebeth.com and you can follow her on Twitter at at doodle underscore Beth and find her doodle cats range at at doodle cats. And I have never said doodle so many times in my life. For now, though, we've reached the end of the third Invisibility podcast, and I'd like to thank you all for sticking with it so far. If there's a disability topic, activist, creator or news story you'd like to see featured here next month, you can contact me on Twitter at at visibilitytoday or email visibilitytoday at gmail.com. 
For now, thanks for listening and I'll see you in May for another look at what's in visibility then.